0: Hello, and welcome to the Bedrosian Center's book club podcast, an audio book club where we read and discuss a book every month, sometimes two. We read new and classic works, fiction and non, through a lens of governance to really get at what it means to participate in our communities today. I am Aubrey Hicks, Executive Director of the Bedrosian Center, and today we're talking about... Again, history and the US. We're going to talk about the stories that the country tells ourselves, um, the country tells itself, I should say, and how those stories don't match up to actual history. So, we're thinking today about how a murder case from 1722 can help us think about justice in a new, old way. We're talking about Covered with Night by Nicole Eustace today. A history of a Native American man's murder, the fragile peace that followed, and how cultural ideas of justice can and should be re-examined. So with me to talk about the books are two amazing people, um, and I will introduce them right now. <laughs> okay, so with me um, are two of my favorite people in the world to discuss this book. Um, Jen Bravo, can you tell our listeners who you are?
1: Hi, everybody. I'm Jen Bravo. I am an alum of uh, the Price School at USC, and I work in climate resilience here in Los Angeles. Excellent. Thank you for joining us
0: again this month. uh, Another long book. I appreciate it. Um, And David Sloan, can you tell our listeners who you are?
2: I'm a professor in the Price School in the Department of Urban Planning and Spatial Analysis, and I have a PhD in American History and teach history and community assessment and community health plan.
0: So, I also thank you for joining us in particular with this book. And I will, before we go, I want to talk about your using this book in your class, but we should start with um, sort of starting with what the book is. David, did you put together a summary for this?
2: I did. So, in the summer of 1718, no, I guess it was 1722, Two colonists murdered a Native man after trying to get his furs at an incredibly bargain price. The incident illustrates the fragile relationships between Natives and colonists. This one murder, or what the Europeans called an accident, became the source of a crisis that eventually forced the colonial governors of Virginia, Pennsylvania, and New York to meet with the representatives of multiple Indian tribes, including the Haudenosaunee the Iroquois, and formulate the oldest continuing, recognized indigenous treaty in Anglo-American history. Nicole Eustace, though, tells two stories, the carefully chronicled diplomacy between the colonists and the people, especially the people of the Susquehanna and the Haudenosaunee, the Iroquois, five nations. And really the point of the book, the chasmic differences and indigenous and settler colonial conceptions of criminal justice. While the Europeans wanted an eye for an eye, indigenous tree tribes wanted to, quote, cover with night, unquote, the death, reintegrate the offender into society after he admits his crime and offers reparations, ending without having to create a carceral system. This book was nominated for a National Book Award for its carefully researched, yes accessible, smoothly, if a bit redundantly written style. Eustace dives us both into both the native and colonial worlds with dramatic and mundane details, creating a moving narrative. She leaves us saddened by the colonists' narrow-mindedness and uplifted by the indigenous spirit of restorative justice.
0: Thank you. (laughs) <laughs> I, I feel like I don't have anything to add. Jen, do you have something to add?
2: No, I think that was beautifully done.
0: I know. David always does the the best summaries. Thank you. So I think given that, I want to start with sort of what – let's just set the stage. So uh, 1722, were pre-United States, pre-Declaration of Independence. We are um, in the Pennsylvania colony for most of – the action of this, although we do move up towards Albany and in Maryland as well, what is the real difference in governance between um, the indigenous folks and the colonial folks?
1: I could I could take a little stab at that just to start. So big picture here, um, and I think one of the things that this book maybe do is go look up William Penn and become a bit reminded about these sort of original. Um, colonial families that then believe to have these sort of land grants. And they, you know, that these families are running these these colonies. And, and William Penn has died at this time, and Pennsylvania is being run by a governor that was sort of chosen by William Penn's um widow. And you know, the the colonial governments see themselves as separate colonies, separate entities that have you know, sort of diplomatic relations with each other, but independent, whereas the Native peoples have forged these very strong, very familial uh, connections and relationships, especially the five nations of the Haudenosaunee, and I hope that I'm saying that correctly, Um, in many ways in response to colonial presence in in the Americas at this time. And there's a whole history there that I'm not well enough versed in, but I want to become more versed in about the the ways in which the native people saw the colonists' incursions over time, and there was violence over time, and there was sickness and and all of these things, but they continually tried to forge Sort of like long-term, lasting community bonds with the colonies, and the colonies' perception was was much more hierarchical. What we imagine the European perspective to be, which was that the the native tribes were were subordinate to the to the colonists, um, and that really, you know, that this this book speaks to. Not only the difference in justice systems, but the complete difference in value systems in the ways that these different groups of people approached uh, diplomacy and politics and economics.
0: And sovereignty.
1: Yeah. David, do you have
0: anything to add to that?
2: You know, the the basic realities of the two governance structures are so distinct that one can just, Jen started the list and you can just keep going. Uh, the Native Americans are much more matriarchal. Uh, the the British are so patriarchal, it's like frightening. Uh, and so right from there, you get these different approaches to how governance should work. Uh, the governance structures of the five nations, which is the ones that get the most discussion in this book, are really about how do we make sure that we all move forward. The patriarchal ones are uh, who who's the big dog and who gets to get as much stuff as possible. The duplicity of the British all the way through the book uh, is just a part of the governance structure. I mean, you're supposed to be yeah. duplicitous to people like the Uh And so there's this uh, incredible sense of cynicalness among the Europeans that's not among the speakers for the for the five nations or for the Delaware or the for the others on the Susquehanna. So it's just endless variations on the same theme, which is uh really comes beautifully through very early in the book when uh we meet Captain Civility, whose name I'm not gonna try and say, <laughs>
1: uh
2: and he is he's um introduced to us and the Europeans have named him Captain Civility sort of as a satiric comment. But in reality, once he talks and they talk, the question that she raised, Eustace raised, and it's a good question, which I think is easily answered, of which of these is more civilized uh, when we discover it's not the Europeans.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's an interesting thing here, which is that at its core, We can think of the Europeans operating under a competition model and a a hierarchical power structure, and the native tribes operating under a collaborative model that I think is really, really beautifully described in the book when Eustace talks about the circle of consultation that happens among the five nations. So when they need to speak as one voice, the nations that are furthest out from the center geographically discuss first and they come to an agreement and then that agreement moves inward and that they reach an agreement into the center tribe, the center nation makes a decision and then it circles all the way back out to the most outermost nation again for confirmation. And so there's a constant sort of cooperation and collaboration to maintain like a strategic balance and to maintain those deep sort of like they're they're basically fictive kinship ties among these different nations, and we see that it, it is so clearly fundamentally distinct from the way the Europeans operate that the Europeans don't even understand it. They don't even know that what they don't know.
2: They don't know that they don't understand it. Yeah. That central t- tribe, just by the parenthetical, is the Onondaga's, who has reservation, is about uh, 25 miles from where I grew up. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's the the
1: Oneida, the Mohawk, the Seneca, the um, Cayuga and the Onondaga peoples. Yeah. I did struggle with a lot of the names in this book, I will say, and I don't, I'm very terrified of mispronouncing <laughs> any of them on this podcast. Well, we're going to do our best, but I would yeah.
2: add to that, you know, the interesting thing about the five nations is the five nations are this, you know, very strong group. But they're not afraid to compete. That's right. Well, this is where the European uh, sort of model differs. Is the the, the the five nations are competing with the Delaware? They're competing with the Cree. They're competing with the Creeks so all the way down the eastern seaboard and toward the west with the Algonquins. Uh, you know, they're competing, but they don't see it as you know a winner takes all battle, right? You know, even when they go down and take people as as slaves, right? When they take people as slaves, they bring them back and incorporate them into their communities. So that their communities are actually probably more multicultural than one would imagine they would be in this sort of fictitious uh, image we have of uh, Indian tribes at the time. Mm -hmm. And so you have this really interesting movement, this fluidity that's all, it's both in the tribes, you know, in the Five Nations, but also between the tribes and, and between individuals. Uh, it's just a really beautiful. And I think Eustace, this is one of the strengths of the book, is she understands that fluidity and portrays it in so many different ways. I mean, one of my yeah. ways, not to go on too long, but one of the ways I loved was when they were doing translation. Mm-hmm. So the, the one guy knew Delaware. So he translated Delaware into whatever Iroquois. And you know the Iroquois guy translated into English, mm-hmm. and there might even be another set in there somewhere. There were and like four layers this, at least. Yeah, they, they did this. They did this just like, oh, that's the way it is, right? It's not a big deal. Yeah, it, I think that
1: it's fascinating in that the the integration of people who were taken during during like the wars for mourning when someone was killed or or various kinds of interactions with the other people were integrated fully as people. Into the society at home. And so the they they have a, a difficulty understanding the European concept of like owning a person, a person being an object and a person losing their freedom of mobility. Like that's something that they don't get. They're like to to them, you know, freedom of mobility is is key. It's the core of liberty. And the Europeans just don't understand what the what the problem is with that at this point in time. I thought that was fascinating.
0: I think. What you're getting at is one of one of my big questions, which is that um, this question of um, legibility—it's it, clear to me that the native peoples were trying to bring the colonists into friendship, into relationship, into right relationship, and. There were lots of things that they had no understanding of what the colonists were, were getting at, but they tried. you know, they were also trying whereas the colonists just sort of assumed that their way was right and whatever way the Indians were doing it was not.
1: Yeah. The book is, is um, threaded throughout with the, you know, what we know is true about European value systems, about patriarchy, about the um, belief that certain groups of people are morally um, subordinate or morally degenerate. And like there there were some very clear reminders throughout that they didn't even believe that native peoples were truly capable of having morals or, and so they didn't understand that they were basically being schooled. Like they, they were actually being schooled with a more sophisticated form of diplomacy that
2: they didn't even believe those people to be capable of. She also does a nice job of integrating John Locke and other writers. Mm -hmm. And their basically ethnocentric racism uh, that is at the essence of all of this. And there are times when it got frustrating for me, the book, uh, near the end when she admits that even if the British had put these people on trial, they would never have let any of the Delaware uh, or the Conestogas to testify because they were natives. uh, And that by just that definition. So they're really, she sets up this suspense that in some sense is a a straw dog yeah. because there really is no suspense. The governor is really going to make the decision no matter what. Uh, And he may kill them. Yeah, it may be that he has to kill them for for his own interest, but he's not going to kill them out of justice. It's going to be because, you know, it's good for him. And so there are moments where that gets frustrating. But but then she has these moments where it just is really beautiful the way that she talks about. uh, So on 147, she talked about objective justice as if, you know, there is such a thing. Mm-hmm. and uh you know there's, there's so there's stuff like that all the way through that I think are is really worth powerfully worth the reading of the book,
1: yeah, I think I will say I struggled a little bit with the book, not in terms of the the content or the ideas. I actually thought that the story was fascinating, and I took lots of great notes. I struggled a little bit with the writing style, and it felt um. It felt really choppy to me in parts. It was quite repetitive in parts. And I felt like a different kind of editing would have made it a more streamlined story that I might have actually enjoyed reading more. But I definitely thought there was real value in the deep, deep history that she was doing. And what's interesting about that deep history is that it's because a colonist transcribed what the spokespeople from the five nations we're bringing to the governors that we even have their, their words documented, essentially word for word. It's like hard to know exactly because there's always going to be some interpretation on the, on the part of the scribe. And we know that there are issues with translation, obviously, especially when you're translating across like four, four languages to get from the original speaker to the person who's transcribing. But but there was clearly very, very deep history down here that I think is really valuable.
2: So one of the difficult, as an historian, one of her difficulties is she's trying to write a book for Norton, which means it's a, it's a trade book. She's trying to make it so that it's you know, very accessible to all readers. And yet she's still trying to make historians happy. And, uh, and I think this, this paradox, and I've run into it with myself with, uh, in the last book I wrote. And, uh, this paradox is tricky. You know, how do you, how do you hold on to your credentials as an academic while you're trying to write to a public? And I think in her case, she over dramatizes a little and, uh, she feels like she has to explain things, uh, multiple times in a way that uh, is frustrating, I think, for both kinds of readers. Uh, and so I, I think at times the book gets uh, sloggy. It it gets a little bit harder to read than it should be. Uh, and there are things that she holds out from us that I don't think she should have held out from us. I have to say the, the converse side, as we've already began to talk about, is it's just really amazing how she is able to portray colonial life and native life in these incredibly rich ways that are, I got to tell you, pretty unusual for books of this kind, both accessible and academic. So I, you know, I can see why people at at the national book award like it, but I can also understand why Jen had trouble and, Anne, my wife is reading it right now. And she's like, why is she talking about all this stuff? (laughs) Like, do I really need to know how how many chairs there were?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There were whole sections where I was like, I think we maybe could have cut this section out.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I actually also had trouble reading this book. Um, I didn't enjoy reading this book, although I really liked the story and learning the history. And, you know, you're from the area where the Onondaga are from, and I'm, you know, from Right outside of Chester County, right? So, um, and lived for a while in Ithaca. So, like, this is, you know, home too, you know, in a way, even though, you know, I am a, I am a settler. I think one of the things that I wish we had in the book that I think was part of the intention, and I wish it was just a little bit more explicit throughout is the idea of the, these competing, not only governance styles, but competing ideas of justice, competing ideas of, of relationship to land, competing ideas of contracts, right? I mean, you know, she does, you know, she brings in Locke, and we talk about contracts, but, you know, ultimately, we have contracts because people, your your own body is your own property, and so everything is property to settler colonialism, Whereas, you know, there really isn't property in the same way um, for Native Americans' peoples. (laughs) Um, And I just, you know, I I think those are some of the ideas that I think I would have liked the theories a little bit more fleshed out, not just the, the history, so that I could think about... Um, more directly how we are, you know, how can we apply this to thinking about justice today?
2: So historians are always nervous about theory. I know. Uh, it always, because when you start applying theoretical frameworks to history, often the history gets lost in the, in the superstructure of the theory right. and historians build their theory out of the details. I mean, the details are, the narrative. The narrative is the story. The narrative is the theory. That's the argument. The argument always comes out of the narrative. It doesn't come out of a secondary set of theoretical principles. Uh, and when it does, it gets even crazier than this book, let me tell you. So I'm not surprised she didn't do that, because I think she would have been really uncomfortable with it. Yeah. Uh, I do believe that you're right, though, that at points, she does point out things all the way through the book. I mean, there is this this contrast. Contrasts are the basis, really, of the entire narrative. But she doesn't uh, always uh, take us all the way through. The moment that I recognized this best was on page uh, 334, where she, um, she really, in that last paragraph on page 34, she she goes from feudal but not communal mm-hmm. to contractual individualism. And she does it really actually very well. Yes. I mean, it's a, it's really a really nice little synthesis. The trouble being, of course, that the whole book doesn't really lead us to that synthesis in the way that we might want it to. That it, we, we don't have enough super, uh, we don't have enough of the contrast to completely accept that that is, we, we accept it, but we accept it because we know everything else rather than because she has convinced us of it. Where I don't agree, actually, Aubrey, about the criminal justice stuff. I think she does a really nice job of um, comparing what the Haudenosaunee want, Haudenosaunee want, and what the British want. The British, the only thing the British to offer is we're going to kill these guys. I mean, that's all they got. Whereas the Haudenosaunee say, you can do this. You can do this. You can do this. They could do this. They could say this. They can do that. You can say it. And you can give it. And you can do this. You can play this. There's there's multiple ways that you can repair this harm, right? And you're not doing any of it. Yeah, yeah. Until near the end.
1: And so much of that is because what's the goal, right? What's right. the goal of these different values? And for the Native peoples, the goal is actually to repair the harm and not to create additional harm. Whereas for the for the settler colonialists, they're like, let's just deal with this. Let's just like sever ourselves from this problem so that we can never pay attention to it again and just go on about our business. And I noticed in the discussions around the concept of suffering. And when suffering has occurred, more suffering does not make things any better. Such a parallel between the native viewpoint and like Buddhist philosophy and some other Eastern traditions where what is actually needed is to repair the social relationship, not to cause further wounding by causing further suffering. And I think that that I've been doing a lot of reading in my, in my other life about Buddhist philosophy, and I was really I really loved seeing a real world example of this kind of in practice, how these people engaged in restorative justice in practice, because it really helped me think about how we can start doing a little bit more of that in the modern era in our own communities. So I love that parallel, seeing it. And I love thinking about how can we start to apply some of this to today?
2: So, Aubrey, you asked why I took it to class. So I'm teaching a class in the history and theory of urban planning. And I took a to class because I was about to talk about carceral planning and its place in urban planning today. And I set the stage by saying, okay, here are two theories of justice, right? The one theory is what we believe in criminal justice or retributive justice. And here you have this amazing example and Jen put it really well. There's just not a lot of examples of this, but these are a really beautifully well-drawn-out example of restorative justice, of a justice that looks at the harm to the people who are surviving, the harm to the community, the harm to the relationship of the offender to the victim, right, and harm all the way through. And in our case, it's, you know, you you, you did something bad, so we're going to put you in jail, we're going to kill you. I mean, it's, it's, it's direct retribution. And the people who are harmed are in our system are literally not allowed to speak until the very end. And so, or speak only about how they were harmed. And so, in that sense, I went to my students, I said, you know, if we want to move away from where we are now in justice to another kind of justice, this is a perfect example of how people enacted that justice. They didn't just talk about it. They didn't just do little programs in it. They lived their lives by it, right? I mean, they actually lived their their entire lives by these principles of restorative justice. Mm -hmm. The other thing about their
1: version of restorative justice, which I really appreciated, was that it wasn't just about feelings. It wasn't just about emotion. So, not only does it bring in emotion and feelings, which the which the settler colonialists are like, feelings don't exist over We're here. Rejected. Right. Because like that's not, we don't we don't talk about that. It, but it's not just about the feelings. It's not just about the motion. There's also material reparations that are paid. And so it's this, it is a complex, holistic way of repairing harm. With both bringing feelings, including understanding grief and feeling remorse, and all of these things, along with material repayment for the harm caused, and that together those things create the true reparation of the relationship. So, it there is a material component to it, which is really interesting, but that that isn't um, that isn't brought to bear by. Severing the relationship with the person who caused the harm. We actually want to reintegrate that person who caused the harm back into society and have them continue to contribute to society after they've paid these reparations, which is just so fundamentally different from how we function.
2: So, our wonderful colleague, Lisa Schweitzer, has this article that she wrote about restorative ethics uh, in planning. And one of the things she comes to conclude is you can apologize all you want. In the end, you have to figure out a way to repair the harm. And one really obvious way to repair the harm is with money. And here, I mean, again, Jen, you put it beautifully. It's it's not just, I mean, it's they want the clerages to take accountability. They want them to take responsibility for what they did. Then they want them to give them things so that the family is is repaired and the community is repaired. Then they want them to come back and be part of that community. And that is all, it's, it's not one piece of that, it's, it's everything to that. This is what I mean by them living the restorative justice ethic, not just talking about it, you know, it's not a high school where we we're going to just, the kid's going to say, okay, I did that, and then everybody gets to go away, right? This is, they're, they're in some sense building this principle into the very nature of how they imagine justice.
1: Yeah, and paying the reparations was seen by the Europeans as like, oh, we're just going to pay them off. Like their perspective right. was, we're just going to pay them off. Whereas no, they're saying, actually, you're paying into a system and you have accountability to that system and you have further sort of integration into the system through the reparations that you are paying for the harm that you caused. Whereas the Europeans were just like, oh, no, we don't let people buy their way out of crime, which we actually know to not be true also. But in this case, they were like, we won't let them just just buy their way out of this because they see the world so differently. It's purely transactional. Economic transactions are competitive. In in the native system, economic transactions built relationships. Trade was the foundation of relationship, not a competitive
2: practice. So on page 249. This, I, I just love this moment. And you, you use this has these moments all the way through where you just get uplifted by the way she thinks about it. In the last paragraph, when Pennsylvania colonists continue to grumble about Native demands for presence, sometimes going so far as to mistake wampum simply as a Native form of money, they entirely miss the central importance of presence mm-hmm. in, in the Native world. Wampum holds memories and messages more effectively than paper and parchment for the simple reason that it it acquires full meaning only when held aloft in the hands of knowledgeable speakers. In other words, we're not giving you a present. Yeah. We want you to be present in our space, listening to us about what happened and how we're going to fix it. And yep. the colonials are completely like. They really just at, don't know, like, get why it. Why do we have to keep giving them stuff? Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a there's a level of sort of comedy at a certain point because like as an outsider, hundreds, you know, 200, 300 years in the future, we're like, why don't you guys get this? Like they're being very clear with you. Like, <laughs> They've given you a lot of opportunities to get this right,
2: you know. And it just comes down to they don't want to believe them. They don't want to be right.
1: No. In fact, there's a line and I, I don't remember what page it's on, but I think, I think she's talking about Logan and she's like, he only hears what he wants to hear. Yeah. And I thought that was just, I was just like, mm, that applies to mo- <laughs> most of the folks on this side of this, this crisis.
0: You know, I I'm, I'm coming around to, to your perspective. <laughs> um, and, you know, I have been thinking about that. Um, I think one of the things that dismayed me is that our um, our victim's wife in the beginning is is very much a part of the story and how important, uh, you know, um, her feelings and her wants in terms of retaliation or not retaliation, um, were so important. And then, you know, I felt like she was sort of lost. Um, as the story went on and went on and went on because the colonialists just didn't know what they were doing.
2: You know, it's worse than that, Aubrey. And I, and this is, I, I really can't blame Eustace for this. Um, she has done a magnificent job of finding sources here, but the Europeans don't want to talk to any women. They don't even yeah, want the women to Yeah, it's just not documented.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so
2: she's, she disappears because she's pushed out of the picture. And she does. just tries to hold on to the women through the book, not as individuals, but at, in understanding their place in the structures. Uh, but it's just, it comes down to, you know, even though the patriarchal system of the Iroquois is very strong, you know, Europeans want us to talk to a guy. And, the, and by now, the Harunas Shonin understand that. And so they, they send these guys out as as representatives of the matriarchy. Uh and so uh, I I can't pick on her too much for that, I have to say. Um,
0: oh, I, yeah, no, I I,
2: I mean, I um, get it. Yeah, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying I was disappointed as well. But I just I I just think we you know, 1722 was a long time ago. <laughs> a long time ago, yes. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I had to continually remind myself when I thought, "Oh, I want, I want to know why she didn't include something else here." I'm like, "Oh, I had to remind myself. Like, she only, she has all these source materials that are, that are, by virtue of how old they are and who wrote them down, going to be flawed. They're going to be a bit biased. There's going to be gaps, um, which is infuriating, frankly, but understandable.
0: So all of that, um, and yet. And, and, you know, this is not really totally fair on my part either, um, but um, I think really talking about that and the, the fact that, that um, you know, part of the reason we don't have any other records, not just because of written language and that sort of thing, but oral histories and all that sort of thing is because, you know, settlers tried to erase it all. <laughs> I'm laughing, but it, you know, it's, it's, uncomfortable. yeah.
1: Yeah. I do think that there could have been some discussion about that and discussion about like why certain people's storylines just sort of seem to end, you know?
0: Yeah. You know,
1: um,
0: I'm going to, you know, I wish I could tell you more about this person, but you know, the yeah. um, particularly since in the, in the beginning of the book, I, you know, part of my, um, discomfort with the book was that, um, I felt her analysis was coming in the tone of how she um, sort of was judging uh, the different characters and what they were doing. So, you know, it was clear she would use this sort of um, sarcastic, well, and of course the, you know, colonials didn't really think that they were real people. So blah, 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 blah. Right. And so I felt like she was putting in that judgment and our sort of thinking of, the time period was there. Just, I was missing some of it. And, you know, I think in some ways, you know, about how you do the research is part of the story as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think um, there were some places where I could tell she had a bit of a tone <laughs> for, for sure. I can't say I wouldn't have, because I'm also a super justifi- I,
0: <laughs> I mean, it's justifiable um, yeah. considering, you know, uh, you know, what we know of uh, a settler colonialism and its long-term impacts on, on colonists, on settlers, on Native Americans, on all of the people involved and the sort of ongoingness Not sort of, but the ongoingness of that way of being. There's something about the way she's talking about this story in the past that also feels part of this sort of settler colonial modality. Um, The process of, you know, putting this story down as as you know past and not the ongoingness of this story. Um, I'm not putting this in really great language. And I think it's an awful lot to ask of the author. So, you know, I, I don't think it's fair of me, um, but these are the things that I was uh, uncomfortable with. I just felt like there, uh, there was an analysis, but it was sort of um, in tone rather than, um, you know, exploration of, of theories or, or exploration of the sort of ongoing repercussions of those actions. Does that make sense?
2: Yes, but I think that would have been a really different book. <laughs> totally, you're absolutely right. <laughs> I, 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 no, I and I, I, maybe she will write that book. Who knows? Yeah. But I think that's a very different book in the sense of, um, you know, as an historian, the reality is the closer you get to the present, the more nervous you get, because history is really about trying to to build a narrative out of realities, and the closer you get to the present, the realities of those narratives are more complex and, and more chaotic and trying to apply what happened in 1722 to what's happening in 2022 makes historians like fall over dead. And so, uh, I think it's a lot to ask from her, right. but I also think it's a lot to ask from the story. It's already you know, almost 300 pages or over 300 pages, but right. a lot to do. And by that, what I mean is if she was going to write that book, yes, you would cut out a lot of the detail that we have in the current book. But she's really trying to to describe something and analyze something, which I think is really powerful. And that is this idea that there that we have this idea that the British were civilized. I mean, that's that's the fight we're having right now over critical race theory and American, I don't know if you saw this week's New York Times magazine, but there's just a really beautiful article about the 1619 project oh, yeah. uh, by one of the New York editors, New York magazine, uh, the New Yorker, New York Times editors that's all about history. It's all about how history has been told of this. And it's just a gorgeous piece about changing times. Each of those books that's referred in that story, can't tell the story that that historiography just told. They have to tell their story. And I have to say, I'll go back to what I said at the beginning. This book is, is one of the best books I've read in a really long time uh, from an Indian perspective, from a Native American perspective, that we actually get to feel how they felt and get to feel how they thought get to feel how they imagined justice, but also how they lived. You know, what were their relationships between each other? Uh, How did the tribes try to to organize their lives? And how did they have diplomacy between each other? How did the people on the Susquehanna, who are not part of the Five Nations, get involved in this mess? Well, the guy who got killed is part of the Five Nations. So that matters, right? I mean, it's like American getting killed in Germany. I mean, it, it matters what, who you are as well as what you, where you are. And so all of these things she's delving into in ways that are very powerful. And then on top of that, she layers this, uh, at times, uh, frightening European perspective and dismissal of these whole society. You know, they've been having this wonderful moment where she goes, they've been, you know, how do Nashawani have been trading with whites for a couple hundred years at this point they understand what the deal is here the whites not so much right they haven't learned they're sort of stuck and one might make the argument and this is what you're really wanting her to make but she i would say she has to resist that have we have we moved since 1722 i mean in the end this book is really about how at some level, we haven't moved. We haven't moved.
1: We really haven't. And in fact, I made notes throughout the book where the exact same language is still used today. The exact same arguments are still used today. There is, There there was so much that literally was repeating history from 300 years ago that I was actually surprisingly disappointed I guess that like this is still language that's current and present and the way we still think about things and when I say we I mean our larger society not the three of us but the way the the way the majority of our society thinks about things and functions.
0: Okay so um here's where I want to bring up something um uh, there was a scheduling snafu on my part I actually forgot to send the invitation to um to someone who is going to join us uh, uh, on the conversation, who is um, Native American and Indian American. Um, And so, you know, ultimately it's the three of us who are... um, White. White. We're we're very white.
1: (laughs) Um, It's important to to call it out. Yeah.
0: (laughs) But there is also an importance for... You know, in terms of what's going on right now with critical race theory, it is important for white folks to take stands as well. Oh, yeah. Um, and so that's part of why I didn't want to um, to pause. I also didn't want to make Caroline have to read the book um, quickly again.
1: Over Thanksgiving, <laughs> Thanksgiving. and Christmas
0: holidays or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Thanksgiving, yes. I know. I did put some
1: air quotes there. Uh, Problem which the listeners can't see. <laughs> I know that
0: they can't. Well, can they? They can maybe. <laughs> they could hear my the tone, in my tone. But so you know, um, I, I also wonder about the voices. Now you know, I'm not a historian, David. You know this. So, um, and I and I know this is going to feel like I'm I'm picking on her, and I'm not. I. But my question is: Are there folks from the Hodoshani that could have? added to this narrative today
1: like in the in the like modern modern members of those nations i had a similar thought or question which was i would love to know who she had read the book when she was working on it and to what degree she had you know native people maybe help her in any way um with the with the research or with the narrative i d- i did think about that
0: yeah i mean i think so to me um, I think I was really, you know, wanting to do this book, um, but I've also been, you know, a- and and uh, the three of us have been thinking about colonialism for a few months now, right? In our conversation. A few together. months.
1: A <laughs> bit longer than that, but yes.
0: A <laughs> <laughs> bit longer than that. But um, I mean, just like recently, just the the very recent books, for some reason, um, did have this theme um, for some reason, I think that's the way my brain works. But, you know, is this, you know, when she said she she found this documentation, she said, I have a great story. I have to tell it. And that sort of possessive language turned me off a little bit.
1: Mm, like is it, it's not her story to tell?
0: Not because it's not her story to tell. I mean, she's a historian, you know, none yeah. of these people are alive. But um, I think it's, um, it has this sense of, time and place that is that is based on settler culture versus based in Native American people's cultures does that make sense you know I think the the tie that the way place and time are in Native cultures is very different from settler colonialism which wants to put, the indigenous in the past in a way and erase it right
1: yeah we're we're having some echoes back to the british museums right now right like the narrative placing um, people into the past yeah
0: right and so you know i'm uh you know i'm concerned that um we've been having these conversations but we you know, we read the book by dan hicks um a white british dude now we're reading the book by nicole Eustace. um I don't really know her background but I, uh, she seems to be um a white woman. Um she presents as a white woman. So where it, are, you know are there benefits? Yes. But what what could we have done other than actually um have more diverse voices on the podcast? What could we do, you know, to to make sure that our relationship to the story is
2: right? So again, we get into that's another book. Yeah. Right. This is a this is a woman who's uh, a very accomplished historian. Mm-hmm. Um, she is writing a book about something she's very passionate about. Mm-hmm. Um, she's doing it in a way that uh, raises up the voices of the Native Americans. Um, she has vetted the book with all sorts of people uh, who write history uh, in New York, mostly, uh, and, um, has gone to great lengths to make sure that what she's doing is uh, based upon the kinds of stuff that we do. Yeah. That's what historians do. Um, There could be a very different book that talks about the Haudenosaunee and how they look at justice today and how they looked at justice then. Uh, You could do a very different book where you asked People who live today on the reservations of the Five Nations, whether this story resonates with how they imagine life today, you could do a lot of different books. That it would be really great books, book. yeah. but they're really different books. Yeah, I think that um, you know I've been doing this history stuff for quite a while now, <laughs> and I've never heard of this murder, right? I've never heard that the Five Nations stood you know together against the British. In this way, trying to teach them through diplomacy about a different style of justice. So I think of this book as, uh, let's just say, Nicole, uh, uh, Claudia Rankin's Citizen. You know, there's, there's, there in that book, there's probably 20 books. There's 20 different kinds of ways to do that. And all those books might get written now that she wrote Citizen. And now here you have this book, which has gotten a lot of press. Yeah has gotten a lot of notoriety, so here's a bunch of uh, young folk that are going to come behind her and figure out, you know, other stuff that happened. She leaves largely unsaid, although she does say it, she leaves it largely undetailed, that, you know, this is right near the the peak of the Five Nations power. They're going to go on for a while here, but they're going to gradually get They're going to gradually watch as their treaties get ignored or ripped up, or whether they're going to get pushed aside and and put on reservation. I mean, she talks about all that very briefly because that's not part of the story she's telling. She's trying to tell a story of a proud and powerful nation trying to negotiate and teach another proud and powerful nation. And the asymmetry there, of course, is that one nation views the other nation as a real nation and the other one doesn't. And I think that comes across really quite beautifully. Mm-hmm. But could she have done more? Of course she could. I know. I'm feeling, really, really, I'm feeling a book, really guilty. you publish the book and you realize, oh, I could have done these five things or these 50, right. things, or these 30 right. things, right?
0: Yeah. And, and perhaps, you know, this is definitely, you know, where I am in my um, sort of studies of uh, colonialism and justice um, is at a um, a point where I think I want something a little bit different. Although, I think you're right. You know, um, I'm, you know, from this area and I have, you know, um, never heard of this murder. To go, um, I'm just going to change the topic for a little bit because I'm looking at the book. And one of the things about the cover that I really like is that she or the designer of the cover, I don't think she, they would allow her to do that, but um, the, you know, the, the pictogram signatures um, are sort of um, really centered
1: um, Mm -hmm. at the top. Um, You know, I think it's supposed to be a Fox. I think, and I think it's referenced in the text, this particular Fox. Although when I looked at him, I thought he was like an armadillo. I did. But now I'm realizing, I think they don't have
0: armadillos in New
1: York. (laughs) Yeah, I realized that as well.
2: <laughs> uh, so now it's I actually—it's really, actually the guy's signature. Yeah, yeah The, the it's picture really—it's really, a really beautiful piece.
0: Right, yeah. and and you know you um so you that is one of the images that actually drew me into this. You know I you know I should learn not to judge a book by its cover, but but I think that uh,
2: why not.
0: <laughs> that visual reference on the book, I think, was really important. And then, um, you know, she doesn't have um, a ton of images in the book, but the, that um, Stein document is in there, um, you know, I think is really um, important.
2: Um, yeah, again, we're too early for really lots of images. Yeah. You might get a, pam- a portrait of Keith or something like that. But there's going to be very, I mean, you might get some sketches, but even, you know, the book ends with this weird genealogical uh, relationship where, where uh, Logan in his, in his uh, patriarchal way, throws his daughter under the bus and takes up with John Bart Bartram, who is one of the most famous naturalists in American history. Uh, And so you, you. When when Bartram went out there, he would have done all sorts of drawings. They would mostly have been of birds or animals or trees or whatever, but he would have caught some other stuff. But this is just so early that it's it's almost it's it's difficult for this to to be a fully illustrated book. I would have liked a couple more maps, but I, I really say, appreciate
1: maps. Maps help uh, me a lot.
2: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I also would say that one of the things she does to make up for that is she actually gives us these really beautiful uh, descriptions of places mm-hmm. that are they're actually pretty uh, interactive. Uh, there's one on page 194, I think. Let's see. If I'm not mistaken, where she just talks about. Um, mm. The watershed the, and the mountains. The mount- yeah. mountains and the trails. Mm-hmm. She yeah. has this whole thing about trails that I love. Yeah. Where she describes the trails and how they are. And so she understands she doesn't have lots of visuals. And the ones that she uses are not all that great, I have to say. And so uh, you have this circumstance where she's trying. To oh, yeah. Language instead of visuals.
0: I, you know... I- I think what I was getting at too is, is that with the, the writing that you see on the cover and the, the two kinds of signatures, um, you're really seeing this sort of illegibility between the two cultures at the time. Um, I feel like that's the word, the word of the, the month that, you know, these, these two cultures are, you know, one is really trying to understand and form relationship and the other is just trying to, erase and cover yeah.
1: over and there's something interesting deal. there too in terms of the illegibility like they the the native the native people the, the five nations they they know that the Europeans are like not getting it yeah. right because they like keep saying things in slightly different ways and it's like not really being absorbed. They believe themselves to actually be the entity that has the power to like convene and like they you know they call for Keith to show up at their doorstep that for diplomatic it. meetings, right? Like they believe they hold this power, and they're like, "We're giving you a lot of chances mm-hmm. to make this right." And it's so interesting to see that because they're like, "We're the we're the people of this place," and you know, you're here, and we want to have a relationship with you, but and and we want to have an, an, a relatively equal relationship. Like they actually see it as a relationship of equals, and as like a truly. Like a relationship built on true reciprocity, versus the Europeans having the perspective that they are that the Native peoples are subordinate to them, and like how how dare they even call us to come to them? I
2: guess we have to go, you know. But at the same time, they have to go. I mean, one of the really nice things about this is you get the sense of power that the Five Nations had, and how how fearful the colonists, because in the end, in Albany. He gives it up.
1: Yeah, right? he really does. <laughs>
2: they, they get everything they want, essentially. They, they sort of say and he does know, it, on, it. The fly, yeah,
1: on the fly, too, on the fly. Like it's not even what's written down in his script. He just goes off script.
2: Yeah. And he gives them a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. Right? The presents come out because he realizes, oh, we can't let this get out of hand. And so it is funny to watch because, at one level, you can see the Europeans being completely obnoxious. I mean, just unbelievably obnoxious. You watch them and you're just like appalled. And at the other hand, you get the sense that they're going to do what they have to do to get what they want.
1: And I think actually that's a key point, David, right? They're going to do what they have to do to get what they want. It's not, they're going to do what needs to happen to repair this relationship. No, they're no, going to do what needs no. to happen to to, re- to repair no. the harm. And so at the core they're, they're still operating under their existing value system. They're just, it's performative rather than authentic, the way in which they yeah, give yeah. the native people what they want. Yeah.
2: And yet, you know, it's that thing, you fake it until you can make it. They, the natives recognize we just have to keep getting what we can yeah. get and leveraging yeah. what we can do because we're, if we don't, we're not going to get anything.
0: Yeah.
2: Right. Yeah.
0: So what have we not talked about that you wanted to talk about?
2: Well, I would like to talk a little bit about two things that were in uh, shortly. Uh, mm-hmm. there are there's like three or four that come up. There's this wonderful Quaker Anglo divide. Oh that yeah. I, like, thought was fascinating. That but was great. I, 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 well. I know quite a bit about William Penn and I didn't realize that, you know, after he left the Quaker stuff got sort of pushed to the side. Yeah. Then there's the there's grief all the way through ah. this book that's beautifully at times the that, these aren't the two that I want to about <laughs> but on one, page 132 123 the uh you know they go they're they're uh one of the tribes on Long Island uh or in outside of New York and maybe in New England has this whole grief process mm-hmm. which says at the bottom uh, in the last chapter here was a tutorial if yeah. the Pennsylvanians cared to learn and how to mitigate the grief of death and initiate bonds of alliance by sharing tears and giving gifts, the goal of such ceremony is to create an emotional climate of peace. Yep, it's such a beautiful phrase. Uh, that that was really nice. But the two I would I would like us to talk a little bit about were one on page two fifty nine. She has this whole thing about speeches from the gallows. oh yeah this part I was so were, interesting to me I, yeah yeah i just thought it was really well done uh, and, and then who gets who does get hanged and who doesn't get hanged yeah you know, the yeah. black woman gets you know hanged almost immediately uh and and uh you know the other guys sort of sit in their cells and so there's there's all that stuff but the gallows speaks the in the middle of the page she talks about how newspaper readers can't get enough of murder narratives. A good gallows speech always features a, condensed, a condemned person born of an honest father and mother who, after being demiss- dismissed from an apprenticeship, wallows in loose living with bad companions, slips into a sordid life of petty crime and sin, and then falls into committing a capital crime. Yeah. Moral failings are best symbolized by sexual transgressions. So these tales usually contain a certain exciting element of titillation. I mean, it's just, it's, you know, it's the 18th century and they're all whacked out. Yeah.
1: And that that they weren't really the gallows speeches of the people being hanged, I thought was fascinating. They were actually like scripts. They were screenwritten by people like after the fact to be yeah. distributed in the newspapers. So it was like an opportunity for some people to take liberties with the writing and tell these whole amazing sordid dramatic tales that people were just eating up.
2: Yeah. I gave myself up to serve the devil. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 I admit Aubrey, this is one of those moments where she probably could have cut like two pages, right. Or three pages. But
1: for <laughs> it me, as, really I, add. I just, I love this stuff. You know?
2: Yeah. No, you know,
1: there's something at the end of that chapter, David, that I have highlighted, which is it, it's it's sort of to the end of the um, there was the indentured servant who was caught, and instead of being punished, well, while well, his form of punishment was being made to be the hangman for others, yeah, which I found deeply traumatic. That concept was deeply traumatic to me. But that at the end of this chapter, they're basically like, "Oh, he just went back to his his master um, order." is restored is the last sentence of that chapter order is restored and that is like the theme for the Europeans frankly right it's about it's about maintaining order Mm -hmm. so that the the wealthy class can continue to gain wealth exploit these resources exploit the labor of these people exploit the enslaved Africans and the colonized native peoples and and their primary thing is like let's not let's not run the risk of Messing up my my scheme here to get rich, so we have to maintain order at all costs.
2: Yeah, it's really nice. You know, she has these short chapters that are focused on a person or an event, or uh, and it's it, it was I found it a little disconcerting at the beginning, uh, and then I gradually began to like it uh, because I thought she used it in interesting ways. Then the other one that I wanted to talk to you is on page uh, 82. And I hate to be the downer after that exciting gala speech. Communication <laughs> oh, it's very, it's very exciting. Oh. But the way that John Dickinson's book was used against people. Mm-hmm. And to see this, like all good historians, the first thing you do with a history book is look at the footnotes. And if you look at the footnote to this on page 366, She talks about how Dickinson's book, which is just incredible racist screed, reprinted in Philadelphia in 1751, 1756, and 1791. 1756, and and then in Pennsylvania, and then in New York, and in New Jersey, the Pennsylvania printings during the Seven Years' War period in the 1750s presaged the completion of genocidal attacks on Native people of Conestoga the place that we were actually just in, yeah. committed by the Paxton Boys, who are a famous mi- white militia group in 1763, while the 1811 printing presaged the significant further seizure and control of native lands carried out by in the War of 1812. In other words, this book doesn't just screw up the world in which it's printed. It screws up the world for yeah. 50 years.
1: Yeah, it, it's and, the kind of propaganda that incites yeah. Yeah. It, that whole section was really deeply disturbing to me. You know, there's an interesting thing on the previous page on 82 where Eustace talks about Quakers as far back as 1693 making the written argument that slavery was wrong. And then we see that just disappear over time as there was like a lot of wealth to be made, mm-hmm. essentially,
2: which was yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. The Quakers get to be too wealthy. Yeah. Now, admittedly, the Quakers come back. Mm-hmm. They are an important part of the, the anti-slavery movement of the, eight, of the 18th century, or the latter 18th century. So it's not like they're not there. It does, But she does a nice job showing that there's this conflict within the community.
0: Well, you know, it's also, you know, in the 18th century, when the Quakers go back to their original beliefs, it's in part also that they've lost some
2: political power. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Power corrupts. Perhaps uh, there, I mean there Really, is this beautiful thing about power in this book? Yeah, with the council and the governor, the the the, the Native American tribes. I mean, the, the power dynamics are always constantly swirling throughout this book in a way that I found very intriguing. Yeah. You still don't seem happy, Aubrey.
0: Um, no, I'm just thinking of you know, um, ideas of sovereignty. You know that um. You know, I think just part of the the whole problem that we're still living with today is that, you know, there's this way of thinking that doesn't recognize nuance and flexibility, whereas that seems to be so much a part of Native American people's sovereignty is that it's it's about change and, and recognizing relationship changes.
1: It's more flexible. There's, and it, it's paralleled in their physical space too, I think, which is like, you know, there's, she has a whole lovely section where she talks about the resistance to creating like really built settlements and maintaining flexible societies that could expand and contract with need and with seasons, with population and all of these things. And, um, you know, that scene is not civilized by. Yeah. <laughs> right by
2: the colonizers. Yeah. Yeah. I, I finished this book and I, I uh, picked up uh, one of my favorite mystery writers, Tony Hillerman.
0: Oh yeah. Uh,
2: his book, Thief of Time, because I just was in the Indian mindset and I was, you, you, it's the same thing. You know, when a person dies in a house in that community, that house is filled with ghosts. It's filled with a ghost of that. And you have to figure out how to cleanse that house or you burn it down. Right. And, and that means you're not going to build big structures like the Europeans would because the Europeans don't have that relationship to space mm-hmm. and death. They would have dead people all over the place and they didn't care. And so um, it, it is she she actually uh, does get at this uh, in, in ways that I thought were intriguing with the grief and the role of women. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's nice. Yeah.
1: There's some really lovely stuff she does where she's talking about the uh, the concepts of liberty and how both mobility and trade are connected for the Native peoples with the concept of mobility. And I thought there's this one sentence she has on page 322 that I liked. She said, mobility, liberty, and trade can work together to fix unity in the civic soil, like the complementary crops of corn, beans, and squash. And to me, that was a very nice metaphor for I've been thinking a lot about soil also because of my <laughs> because of my work, thinking a lot about soil in many ways being the foundation from which everything that we need <laughs> to survive grows. And this concept that unity for the native folks is um, diverse. It is flexible. It is not, it is not rigid and like codified and like written and like the the ways in which the the colonists treat law. And I, I was just thinking very very much about the the fluidity and flexibility of a system that can even accept people like what's the name for these people who can who can cross who can be members of multiple fanomingo. Yeah, that was fascinating to me because yeah. in European. Um, history, we would, like, see that person as a traitor. That person's, like, a double agent or something, right? Whereas in in this space, this is a person who can navigate their native home and people and their adopted home and people and, like, protect and serve both and serve as a bridge. Um, So, it's really thinking about the ways in which there's fluidity and flexibility and uh, it allows for so much more authenticity and growth in those relationships than like fixed hard codified law does the way the colonists spring that.
2: Yeah. Uh for those who are listening, the fandomingo uh is explained, and I may not be saying that quite right on page 43. You started with that idea of mobility. Mm-hmm. And um on page three ten, just a little bit before where you were speaking, she she has this whole paragraph about, which starts with, wherever they happen to be, the Native peoples of North America scan the land for the stories written upon it. Often they see char marks on the ground that show where the other hunters, travelers, and warriors are camped. And sometimes, by prearrangement, they leave rocks in the ashes, a message that only those with requisite knowledge will understand. Such stones are signs chipped from a cultural bedrock that stretches from across native Native North America. Common appreciation for mobility as liberty. Yeah. From the West Coast to the East Coast, indigenous societies cage neither animals nor people. Neither prison, pen, nor jail, nor gibbet, gibbet has any native equivalent. Furthermore, when native people do draw maps, perhaps on bark or on deerskin, they use them to sketch networks of social connections, mm-hmm. not plats of territorial claims. Mm-hmm. I loved action yeah. so yeah. much. That's yeah. like paragraph.
1: it is a great, great paragraph.
2: Yeah. And then of course we don't want to spoil it for the this is spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> Our hero for the for the uh Europeans doesn't end up quite where he wants to. <laughs> well things
1: don't end well for a few of them. Which one are you talking about? <laughs> I'm talking about Keith. Keith. Yeah. Oh Keith. Yeah. When I got to that chapter at the end, and I had to reread the sentence, I was like, "Where is he?" And then I was like, "Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, okay."
2: Things didn't go well for him. <laughs> no, not on. Un- as she points out, it's not that unusual in that period. You know, there's something. There's like one sort of last thing,
1: maybe not the most exciting thing, though. Maybe we won't really spend very much time talking about it. But there's some some analysis threaded throughout about moral philosophy among the colonists. And at the very beginning of the book, um, page six, she says, the rise of moral philosophy with its high praise for civility did not merely coincide with the modern age of empire, it actively helped underwrite it. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking about that as a theme that's actually across a bunch of books we've been reading and like a Mm -hmm. bunch of work that I've been doing is really interesting. And following that, there is this quote that kind of just sums up the whole, (laughs) it sums up the whole problem and it sums up much of what we're experiencing in the modern era as well. It's on page 301 and it's regarding Logan. She says, His leisure to contemplate questions of moral philosophy results directly from the astounding wealth he is daily accumulating by appropriating the lives, labor, lands, and resources of enslaved Africans and colonized Native peoples, and yet he attributes his fortune solely to the virtuous use he makes of his natural, moral, and mental endowments."
2: What a guy.
1: What a guy. And all I can think, frankly, is some of the billionaires we see tweeting and things like that. Like there's so much parallel to what is going on today still.
0: So uh, my quote was going to be on 303, magic and science, wonder and terror, hope and fear, Settler colonists can never decide if they're on the verge of finding a new Eden, a place where wealth comes almost without toil and all the lush country is theirs for the taking, or if they had ventured into the very gates of hell to a land where labor is forced by lash and land is seized by musket, where each person has a price and the cost of success is the surrender of every Christian ideal. Yeah.
2: That's a great I I gotta tell you, there's a bunch of really nice little quotes
0: in this book. Yeah. Um, So... David,
2: you like the book, huh? Yeah. I mean, I, I had all the issues you had with it. It's redundant. Um, there are times when it's repetitive and and, and frustrating. Uh, there are too many details at points, but that's what I do for a living, right? Yeah. I and mean, that kind of stuff. So for <laughs> me, it was an extremely well-researched, mm-hmm. uh, innovatively written, uh, thoughtfully uh, framed discussion of a really important issue then and now, Mm -hmm. and uh, you don't get many books that are better than that.
0: So I think I'm coming around. I, um, I think that probably I have to reread it. Um, I think I was, perhaps I was just wanting something different, but. um,
2: And that's a reasonable thing to want, Aubrey. I mean, it's just, it, it, you know, it is the book that it is.
0: It is the book that it is. And, you know, given how much we've been able to talk about and, and pull out all of these really important ideas, you know, um, uh, I knew that I was liking the ideas. Um, I just wasn't enjoying the reading and I'm not. Um, but when I read these sentences out loud, I'm thinking, why didn't I enjoy the reading? I'm not quite sure.
1: There are a lot of gems within stuff that was difficult for me to get through. I think that that's my experience with it. And I think I've said this before on this podcast, but sometimes I actually enjoy the note-taking and the talking about a book more than I enjoyed the process of reading the book. I think I've said that at least two or three times before. <laughs> Do you mean House of leaves? Are
0: you talking about House of Leaves? <laughs> I might
1: be talking about House of Leaves, which was a great discussion. Um, but there is something to be said for having a difficult time with a book and then coming together with other people who read it and realizing like I, there were really some fascinating things in here and things that I loved. And talking about the things that didn't work quite so well for us. I think it's it's a lovely process. Okay. Who should read the book? Uh, go ahead, Jean. I was going to say, I think people who are interested in restorative justice because it is an example of that in the real, in world. The real world. I mean, there are other examples, but they're sort of few and far between because it's difficult and our modern world makes it exceedingly difficult to engage in restorative justice processes. So I think it's a nice example um, and maybe provides a little bit of hope <laughs> for how things can be done differently.
2: The other group that I would uh, encourage to read it are people who are interested in understanding uh, Native, uh, Native life. Uh, she talked, there's a lot of stuff in here about how people, um, how people see each other, right? How people interact with each other. In the comparisons between how we live, I'll give you one uh, not trivial example uh, where they talk about, uh, the, I, the Indians talk about one flesh, right? And when the Europeans talk about one flesh, it is by nature patriarchal. So this guy rapes this young woman, his family forces her to marry him, so she didn't get raped.
1: Yeah. And she can't, she can't like bring charges against him because they are the same entity, Yeah, <laughs> which I thought was fascinating. She loses all legal
2: standing. Yeah. And and that certainly doesn't happen in the native world. And so I think people who are interested in the origins of our society and the potential alternative origins to our society uh, could have, could really, uh, could really, um, learn from this book.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you're also um, bringing up something that I, I thought was really important is um, sort of the relationships with um, settlers, you know, was happening for hundreds of years before the United States became the United States, before there were even officially colonies. And the, the laws in the colonies were not set in stone either you know um this talks about the the change in capital punishment you Mm -hmm. know four years three years
1: earlier than than this murder so and they were heavily shaped by like the whims of the governor or whoever happened to be in charge at the time yeah and
0: and how much money really did always play a role in the colonial
1: form of justice yeah that's great (laughs) you're like yeah wonderful wonderful excellent we don't see echoes of that at all, do we? No, mm-hmm. no, that, that couldn't be true.
0: <laughs> um, all right, so I'm going to try to reread this book in a couple months because I think I need to give
2: it. Oh, we don't get to do quotes?
0: Oh, yeah, go ahead. I, I've go for it. I, I I've already, already did, but
2: yes, please, quotes, please. But I'm going to do another one because I please. love it so much. Please. And because we're almost at an Indigenous Day. Yes, it's true. On page 278 at the bottom. Iroquois towns are a woman's world where men in need of pumpkins must ask their mothers, aunts, wives, and sisters to provide them. Women work the soil and claim key community roles as one reward for their toil. Questions of war and peace are debated by councils of women who call out the Confederacy's warriors when they deem it necessary. This harvest season throughout Iroquois clan mothers support the need for condolence ceremonies to cement community they advise the men to appeal to the colonists and persuade them to enter in a stronger alliance yeah i love that if you want a pumpkin go to your mom well
1: also that whole previous actually the two previous paragraphs on page 278 get into like how meaningful pumpkins are which i thought was awesome i loved the whole pumpkin section
2: like pumpkins
1: are about peace and prosperity. That's the
2: that's the short version. We're just trying to give you a, you know some things to to reread there, Aubrey.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I you know looking through, I'm like I have underlined and Dog Deer a lot of of passages. Um,
1: yeah, it's you just good. wanted a different book, which is okay. Not all books can be right for us at the at the right time. You I know. think it Sometimes was just timing
0: and. Um, And, uh, yeah, I think timing and, um, I was perhaps having different expectations than going in without expectations with, which is really what I should do all the
1: time. (laughs) If you don't have any expectations, you can't be disappointed. (laughs) Right. That's the, that's the lesson of my life. (laughs) Attempted lesson.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, um. I think we're out of time, so unless there's there's any last comments, um, I just want to thank you both for um, you. spending time you. with me and talking about this really um, important book.
1: Thank and you. I love, love, love being um, in a group with David talking about history because I learned so much about the way to think about history, yeah. the way history is enacted, the way it is studied. I learned a lot about this book, David, just listening to you talk about process that you just went
2: through to create this book. Yeah. Oh, it's always good to be with you two. It's good to be with the way that you both see things. It's really fun. The podcasts are great.
0: <laughs> all right. So thank you. That's all we have time for today. So thanks so much to David and Jen. I really appreciate your time. Big thank you to our listeners. I hope that you are a fellow book lover and that you enjoy these conversations. To find our whole suite of podcasts exploring governance and civics, search USC Bedrosian on your favorite podcast app. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our website, bedrosian.usc.edu slash book club. And if you're reading along with us, and I hope you are, for December, we are reading Eat the Mouth That Feeds You by Caribbean Fragosa, and I will make sure between now and then to see if the pronunciation is correct so thanks to our guests thanks to our producer a huge thanks to our beloved sound supervisors the brothers hedden uh, signing off i am aubrey hicks coming to you from southern california until next time be good to yourself and your neighbors